So Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I'm going to pray for us and for Justine as we begin this third session. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I do want to thank you for Justine. Thank you for uh, the time and the effort that uh, she put into the making of the documentary from which we've gained so much benefit. A further thank you for uh, the time and effort she's put in preparing for today and then also getting up early and coming to be with us. Pray as she shares some of her research and expertise, you'd give us open minds and open hearts that we might be able to concede those parts of our Christian heritage that have been less than glorious, but also step out in confidence with the good news and the, the great ethic that Jesus not only spoke of, but also lived in his own life. So be with us all, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Well, uh, this is the last week of a, a three-week series on CPX's documentary, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. And I suppose over the last couple of weeks, Simon has invited you to judge the church, to judge the track record of the church against the life and, and teachings of Jesus. Because a plain reading of the history will show that this is actually inviting some, some harsh criticism of the church, and you know, for good reason. Jesus famously said to love your enemies and to do good to those who hurt you. But as you would have seen in the Crusades, Christians and the church have proved a force for violence. So how do you make sense of that? And yet, as Simon would have also said, Christians and the church have also been uh, very instrumental in movements for peace and nonviolence, most visibly in Martin Luther King's activism and civil rights work. So again, how do you make sense of this contrast? And then last week, Simon took you through the Christian contribution to the idea of human rights. He kind of filled in a theological backstory to this idea that all humans are equal and are deserving of, 
of rights. And that theological backstory emerges from this incredibly radical idea that all are made in the image of God, which means that everyone has worth and dignity regardless of where they come from, who they are, how rich they are, how poor they are, their social status, anything like that. But then there's also that reality that Christians went against these kinds of ideas in the practice of owning slaves. And they even used the Bible to justify um, this practice. So again, how, what sense do you, do you make of that? If you've been here for the series, I hope that uh, you've resisted the temptation to be reductive when it comes to the question, would we be better off without religion? Okay, that's the kind of question that sparked the whole documentary. And let's be honest, in a Western context, usually people are thinking about Christianity. Would we be better off without Christianity? But I hope you've resisted the urge to be um, simplistic in the way that you answer that, because it's too simple and too sweeping to declare that Christianity has been either toxic or either beneficial, because the truth is it's been a bit of both. And we're telling a mixed history. And to make sense of that, we offer a central metaphor We've compared Jesus' teachings, uh, love your enemies, for example, to a beautiful masterpiece that he composed. And we've asked the question, how have the followers of Jesus played along with that teaching? And when it comes to Martin Luther King, beautifully, I think. But when it comes to something like the Crusades, it seems like they've butchered the tune. But I hope you've also experienced that when Christians have throughout history played in tune with Jesus, the results have been really good for the world and for everyone, no matter what anyone believes about God or the church. And today we're focusing on the church's tradition of charity, and that made a huge impact on the early church and that reverberates down through the centuries to us today. And I just want to say, for, for anyone in the audience who has come along to these last couple of weeks, and particularly if you're a Christian, if you felt browbeaten by having the sins of the church uh, weigh upon you, then I encourage you that today I'm offering a pretty positive story overall, and I'm not shy about that. It's wonderful to be able to celebrate some of the good that's come out of Christian history. But firstly, can I ask you to... Um, I'm going to ask you to call out in a minute, so be prepared... If you had to uh, think about it, if you had to guess, how rich would you say the Catholic Church is in Australia? Any ideas? Very rich, yes. Anyone like to put a figure on it? <laughs> 10 billion, right? Anyone else? You get the picture. Okay, 10 billion, let's say that. Well, 30 billion. This is according to the SMH and the ABC, which last year uh, did an estimate of the total value of the assets, property and investments of the Catholic Church in Australia. Now, I'm no, I've got no head for, for, for business or for figures like this, so I've found a couple of other numbers that might help you to place this sort of value. Gina Reinhardt, she was on Forbes' risk, uh, list of ten, Australia's 50 richest people uh, in January this year, and her wealth is estimated to be $22 billion dollars. Everyone shops at Westfield. In 2017, um, the Lowy family sold the Westfield Shopping Centre Empire for $32 billion. And then Atlassian, Australia's tech success story, only last month was reported as being worth $50 billion. All of this is Australian money, obviously. And lastly, this is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, obviously not an Australian institution, but it is the wealthiest charity in the world with a fortune worth $72 billion. So think about how you might stack the, the reputed wealth of the Catholic Church in relation to those figures. 
Although, please do keep in mind that what I've offered you is not necessarily a fair comparison because these are predominantly business figures and the church is not a business, right? But I do think it's fair to say that no one probably expected that the reputed wealth of the Catholic Church would rival the price tag for Westfield, right? It's an interesting kind of thing to put it in those terms. <clears throat> now, this story prompted one letter to the editor um, to, in the Age newspaper where a stand of Sandringham recounted this visit to the Vatican where he and his wife went on the grand tour and were astounded by the opulence and the wealth of the place. And then, of course, they, they leave. And who do they run into? A poor woman sitting outside begging for money. And this is what um, he wrote in his letter. It did not take much to realise that the underprivileged people in Rome, and indeed the world, would benefit if the church were to follow Christ's example of giving instead of bleeding its followers for all it can get. So for Stan, there's this mismatch between Jesus, who encouraged his followers to give generously to others, and the church, right, which seems to be enriching itself at other people's expense. And we have to admit that there are certain episodes from within church history that do give that impression. There was the year uh, 1300 where Pope Boniface declared uh, the first jubilee or holy year of freedom and forgiveness. Now in the Old Testament, the jubilee is a once in a 50 years event where the land is restored to its original owners, <clears throat> excuse me, slaves are freed and there's, it's supposed to be a year of justice, a year of righting wrongs. But Boniface's jubilee was a little bit different. Uh, the, the idea was that people would come to Rome, they would perform a, a few religious duties, which included donating to the church, <clears throat> and in return they would receive God's blessing. Now, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims came and gave money, and historians record that it was the job of two priests armed with rakes to kind of clear away the mountains of coins that kind of built up around the shrine. So we can see from this that the church was literally raking it in. And so it's a picture of wealth where really there should be perhaps um, something else. And writing in the same century, the Italian poet and scholar Petrarch was scathing about the gulf that he saw between Jesus and the splendor and magnificence of the palace of the popes in Avignon, which was the seat of papal power in the 14th century and actually the largest medieval Gothic building in Europe. This is what he had to say about that. Here reign the successors of the poor fishermen of Galilee. They have strangely forgotten their origins. I am astounded, as I recall their predecessors, to see these men loaded with gold and clad in purple, boasting of the spoils of princes and nations, to see luxurious palaces and heights crowned with fortifications instead of a boat turned downwards for shelter. So it's quite interesting. We have... Um, Petrarch, in some ways, being the, the stan of his day. And whether you're writing from the 14th century, like Petrarch, or the 21st century, like Stan, we're sensing a theme. It makes sense to feel really suspicious at the thought of a rich church. <clears throat> and that's because Jesus had famously told his followers not to store up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven. And this seems to be Jesus' reminder to be very clear on what is of real and lasting value and worth. And according to him, it's not material wealth. It seems that Jesus wants people to so value and treasure God, who is their real security, that they can actually be really generous towards other people because God treasures them, right? And this seems to be why uh, in the Gospel of Mark, where 
Jesus encounters a rich man, he tells him, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. So he's drawing a direct uh, connection between treasure in heaven and generosity to the poor. So when we hear that the Catholic Church is worth $30 billion, what do we do, right? Surely this is an example of storing up treasures on earth. Surely this is an example of playing out of tune with Jesus. And I have to admit, you probably have to say yes, if you assume, as the news report did, that church properties like St. Mary's Cathedral, St. Vincent's Hospital, and Matthew Talbot Homeless Shelter are just the equivalent of money that you put under the mattress. So the idea of assets that enrich the church but don't serve anyone else. But if you take into account everything that goes on within the church as a whole, and that contributes enormously to the common good, including some of the work that goes on within those very expensive church buildings, then you'd have to say, no, this is a tune that isn't necessarily playing out of tune with Jesus. And that's because the Catholic Church is the largest non-government provider of welfare and education services in Australia. And moreover, its services are available to everyone, no matter what they believe. So these church properties, you could argue, are hubs of essential community services. In response to the news report, the Catholic Church claimed that, you know, sure, we could liquidate everything, we could sell off um, everything and give that $30 billion, if that's the amount, we could give that to the government. But then they make the case that the government annually spends $273 billion on education, health and social services. So $30 billion is only gonna cover you 40 days of that year. And once you get rid of that $30 billion, there's no longer 68 hospitals, 414 nursing homes, 1,736 schools providing education for 765,844 students, as well as jobs for 220,000 Australians. And that's not even counting the services for families in crisis, for funding, for fostering and adoption services, assistance to people with disabilities and their families, addiction recovery services, employment services. And all these are services that the Catholic Church provides every day, every year. Now, just in case the point isn't isn't clear enough, here's Anne Robinson, who is the former director and board chair of World Vision Australia. She puts it fairly bluntly. She says, "If if the church closed up shop and didn't provide the schools, the hospitals, the social welfare infrastructure, society would go bankrupt, basically. It would cause the kind of social disruption that would bring governments down. They couldn't fund these social goods without the contribution of the church. Now, it seems to me that we call these activities social goods or social services, but the church, and not just the Catholic church, but the church in general, the church considers them a critical part of its mission in the world, and our documentary explores why. Before I play you a clip of of that, I I just want to acknowledge that obviously there is a reason why the media went after the Catholic Church for its wealth. We've got to remember that the spectre of of the Royal Commission looms over all of this. People aren't just livid at the church for enabling and um, covering up the abuse of children, but they're also very angry that the church will say and has said it doesn't have more money to, to pay in compensation to victims. 
And through, the, through both of those um, instances, the church has shown itself to be quite secretive, the very opposite of a transparent institution. So people want tax exemptions for churches to be removed. They don't want any public money used to prop up the church. And they don't want the church to impose its teachings on anyone who comes into contact with it or its services. I think we can say broadly that people want the church to pay, right, and not just in terms of dollars. I want to say this is completely understandable, but I also want to say that if you want to, if you want to effectively punish the church, the tax code is not uh, a strong enough instrument. A far greater punishment, I would argue, is that if you measure the church against the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus, hold the church, which is called the body of Christ, accountable to its head. That might be the way to actually um, bring it to justice. So with that in mind, let's watch uh, a clip from the documentary on the Good Samaritan. The expression, a good Samaritan, is one most of us are familiar with. It comes from a story, a parable Jesus told about a man who was robbed and left for dead on the treacherous road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Two religious types walk by, one of them a priest, and they do nothing. Along comes a Samaritan, an outsider, and he's the one to bind up the victim's wounds, take him to safety, and pay for his recovery. Jesus makes the Samaritan the ethical hero because he is, in that Jewish culture, the absolute anti-hero. It's the kind of thing where maybe even some Jews would say, I, I don't want your help. I may be taking my last breath, but the last person I want to help me is a Samaritan. Jesus expected his followers to care for people in need, regardless of race, religion, or morality. And by making the Samaritan not the priest, the hero of this story, he was pointing out that sometimes religion gets in the way of universal compassion. If that sounds like a modern message, it's because Jesus' teaching influenced our world more than we realize. The parable of the Good Samaritan is something that just resonates in Western culture. And we've got hospitals called the Good Samaritan, and it's, it's our ideal. For the next few centuries, Jesus' followers searched for ever more innovative and effective ways to follow his teaching and redress poverty. By the year 250, the Church of Rome was supporting 1,500 destitute people a day. It's incredible to think that the church's daily food roster for the poor was as large as the largest civic associations in the Roman Empire, the Teachers Guild, the Leather Workers Union, and so on. And Christians were doing this in a period when their own legal status was tenuous at best, and sometimes they were being fed to the lions. The best kind of care that the church has provided for the world has been when it's out of power and it's not worried about ruling, but more worried about being on the ground, taking care of the poor and the vulnerable. Looking out for the interests of the people who've been forgotten. And I think that's actually one of the things that the church keeps coming back to one way or another. Who's not here? Who's, who's not audible? Who's not visible? They're the people we need to be in touch with. And in so many societies with huge rates of human casualty. You have to say, well, if it weren't for that community, 
which is dedicated to looking out for the interests of those that everybody else has forgotten, then it, it would be it would be an appalling prospect. During what's called the Great Persecution of the years 303 to 312, many churches were destroyed and Christians arrested and killed. Court records of the time highlight just how central charity was to the activities of the early church. Roman officials burst into the church of Curta over the other side of the Mediterranean, hoping there were treasures hidden in the basement, just as there often were in the pagan temples. What they found, though, was a simple storage room for the church's work among the poor. The official records list the items, 16 tunics for men, 82 dresses for women, 13 pairs of men's shoes, 47 pairs of women's shoes, 19 peasant capes, and 10 vats of oil and wine for the poor. Given Christianity's rich tradition of charity, I guess you could say they did find the true treasure of the church. What is so central to Christian faith, apart from the very important beliefs about the nature of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, resurrection, his coming again, these things are important. But I'm, I'm always amazed by the simplicity of some of the stories Jesus told, um, the story of the Good Samaritan, how you look out for your neighbor, which is about added value to community. And so I think at the very heart of Christian faith are some, yeah, big ideas about God and the world. But actually, it's about added benefit to your neighbor, essential feature of what Christian faith looks like. So I'm really interested in uh, Joel Edwards' closing comments there. He talks about the story of the Good Samaritan, about being how you look after your neighbour, added benefit to community. And I might just want to, I just want to observe that these days we are really nostalgic and sentimental when we talk about community. And I think it's because, it's because we automatically constrict it to the people that we like and the people who are just like us. So, for example, we love the idea of a community garden, right? We think that we're, it's a gathering of people who are all like-minded in that they think that uh, it's better to grow your own produce and that it's far superior um, to, in terms of what is, what is actually grown to eat from that rather than go to the supermarket. So a community garden sort of gathers together people who are really like-minded in that. So we, I think we love the idea of community when community basically consists of people who are just like us. But we're less keen on community that encompasses everyone, people we don't like, people that don't share our values and don't see the world in the same way that we do, people who are wholly unlike us and might even grate on our nerves. And I think that anyone who's shared an apartment complex and had to have a communal recycling bin and had to deal with neighbours who don't understand what goes into the bin and what doesn't, you know what I'm talking about, okay? But really, it's that decidedly non-sentimental version of community that I think Joel is talking about and that I think uh, Jesus is pushing people towards in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan because the whole story is told in response to the question of a religious expert who says to Jesus, who is my neighbour, right? So as, this, as the passage begins, the expert has already correctly identified that the love of God and the love of neighbour is basically what's going to put someone on the path to eternal life because that kind of life... Uh, anticipates and embodies God's kingdom. But the expert wants to go one step further. He wants to justify himself, maybe, maybe clarify just who his neighbour is. 
So in some ways, he wants to know to whom he should constrict his love, who is inside his neighbour group and who is out. And Jesus, of course, you know, confounds expectations always, and he does uh, so today as well in this parable. He has a despised Samaritan be the hero of the story, and that Samaritan is the one who overcomes differences of race and religion in order to show mercy and compassion. And then Jesus says to the expert, go and do likewise, be like that person. So Jesus is calling for universal compassion, care for everyone, regardless of who they are, what they believe, where they come from, whether or not they're in your community. So it seems that Jesus is calling for such an expansive open-heartedness towards the other that there's no point trying to say, who should I show love to and who shouldn't I show love to? Because if that is such uh, an expansive category, it's even going to include your enemies at some point. So don't waste energy, Jesus seems to say, in trying to work out who your neighbour is. Just get on with being a good neighbour to other people. And in some ways, given that the care that the Samaritan provides the beaten man, given that the detail of that care comprises the most verses in that parable, there also seems to be an implicit suggestion that if you're going to dwell on anything, don't dwell on the identity of the person you are to care for, but dwell on the kind of care you should be offering. Think about how the Samaritan goes out, stops really, on a dangerous road and goes out of his way to help the beaten man. He bandages his wounds and attends to him, picks him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to safety and then pays for his care, not only for then but into the future as well. So really, Jesus seems to be saying, get on with being a neighbour to other people in ways that are practical, in ways that are healing, in ways that are trained to the other person's good and do this even if it is costly to the person providing care. Now, what Jesus calls for here both deepened and extended earlier Jewish law, and we'll see that in this clip. Long before Jesus, the laws of ancient Israel called on people to care for the poor, regardless of citizenship. When you beat the olives from the trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains to the foreigner, the fatherless, and to the widow. It's an amazing thought. The Creator has given me more than I need, not just so that I can enjoy more, but so that I can share it with those who have nothing. The surplus of the rich actually belongs to the poor. It is no exaggeration to say that the ancient Jews invented what we call charity. What drove this is as part of the tradition as the way in which the community should act as a community. And it's clearly seen as a, uh, a mitzvah, a requirement, um, rather than something optional. Uh, as something you can do if you, you wish to be altruistic. That's very distinctive um, within the um, uh, ancient world. In the Old Testament, that really counts as a very serious imperative uh, that you must uh, allow the poor access, that the poor are stakeholders. And so even if you own land, you are supposed to allow some access to the poor to that land. Because in the end of the day, you don't have absolute ownership of that land. 
you are only looking after us on behalf of God. You're a tenant of God. Um, so again, the theological perspective directly impacts the, the moral duty that you perceive. Christianity inherited the Jewish emphasis on using resources for the poor. The innovation of the church was to open up this charity to the world, to Jews, Samaritans, Greeks and Romans, believers and unbelievers alike. The church's reputation for charity was so strong that in the year 329, imperial officials decided that churches should be exempt from taxation. This was no special treatment. Plenty of civic associations were also tax-exempt. The reason in this case was entirely practical. Who else was going to look after the destitute? The legislation itself explains, the wealthy must be there to support the obligations of the secular world, while the poor are maintained by the wealth of the churches. Long before anyone had thought of state-sponsored welfare, charitable services in the Western world were entirely the business of the church. The key factor, I think, in the growth of Christianity was community. Uh, in a world that had no social services, in a world which had many slaves and very poor people, here was an organization in which people took care of one another, which in a sense provided social services that weren't there for anyone else. Uh, I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not suggesting that uh, people join Christianity for ulterior motives or just because uh, they, they got a free meal. But, but there were enormous advantages and that certainly didn't hurt. As the church got on with this serious business of charity, one emperor panicked. Emperor Julian was a devout student of Greek philosophy and religion. He studied for a time here in the Academy of Athens, and he despised the new religious upstarts. Julian left us a collection of almost humorous letters to various imperial officials, complaining that the Christians cared for everyone. He was worried that they were going to take over the Roman world by the stealth of their good deeds. In one letter he wrote, the Galileans have devoted themselves to philanthropy. They have their so-called love feasts or hospitality or service of tables. They call it by many names because they have many ways of carrying it out. And the result is that they have led a very many others into their atheism. He calls Christianity atheism because it denied the Greek and Roman gods. But perhaps the most interesting letter is one he wrote a few years later to the pagan high priest of Galatia named Acacius. In this letter, he gives the equivalent of millions of dollars of the imperial purse to establish a welfare system in the pagan temples modelled on the one he saw in the Christian churches. He wanted to beat the Christians at their own game. In Julian's letter, he effectively says, we've got a public relations problem here. Uh, these Christians, whom we persecute from time to time as a way of justifying Roman law and customs, are making us look bad. They're caring not only for their own poor, but they're caring for ours as well. So here's some funding to spread around in the emperor's name uh, so that these Christians will stop making us look bad. Julian died the next year. And so did his welfare program. But the churches went from strength to strength. 
So the early Christians were known for supporting not only their own poor, but other people's as well. This straight from the mouth of Julian, who was no friend of Christianity. So it seems as though you didn't have to be in the Christian club in order to qualify for Christian care. And we know that um, when the Roman world uh, experienced a plague in 165 AD, we know that, um, and then also a century later there was another plague, we know that both times Christians stayed behind and cared for their sick neighbours while other people just simply fled to safety. And this made a great impression upon people who experienced the plague because it made no sense that these people would stay behind and risk their own safety on behalf of other people. And this kind of sacrificial care wasn't simply an emergency measure either. In 390 AD, a wealthy Roman noblewoman called Fabiola opened the first Western and public hospital in Rome. After her conversion to Christianity, she'd sold everything she had and then used that money in order to help the poor and the sick. The, The first day that she opened the doors to the hospital, the idea that you could receive free public health care was so unknown and radical that no one actually turned up to help. So she didn't wait for them to discover. She went out and found them and brought them back to a hospital. And after her death, Jerome, who was a church father and also Fabiola's mentor, had this to say about her. How often she carried on her own shoulders poor, filthy wretches tortured by epilepsy. How often did she wash away the purulent matter from wounds which others could not even endure to look at? She gave food with her own hand, and even when a man was but a breathing corpse, she would moisten his lips with drops of water. Rome was not large enough for her kindness. So it seems to beg the question, why this lavish care? Why this lavish care for everyone, not just Christians? Well, the early Christians behave like this because they believed in a God of love, a God who who loved everyone regardless of whether they would love him back and regardless of whether they were lovable or good, and all because it's in the very nature of love to be trained towards the good of the other, even if that other person is not so good. Now, Jesus himself had lived and died like this, and in his death, he extended an unequivocal welcome to all people. And that's why the Apostle John could write to fellow believers, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I think it's fair to say that if God is going to be kind to us, we want to have deserved it. We want to have done something in order to earn that kind of favour. But love, this passage tells us, love can't be earned or deserved And in some ways, because that that idea that you can earn or deserve love puts too much emphasis on the one receiving love rather than the giver of it, God himself. And so Christians reasoned that if God loved like this, then the best way to praise and honour him was to love as he loved. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Something like that is going on here. So Christians believed that human love should mirror divine love. It should be sacrificial. It should be merciful and indiscriminate. Now, the best of Christianity has always proceeded from this foundation, and it makes the faith worth serious investigation as a source of meaning and purpose and hope as well, and especially if it happens to be true. So if you don't count yourself as a Christian, I do hope you'll consider investigating it further. I believe there's an alpha course being run here at the moment, and it's certainly a good opportunity to to look further into this. 
Now, in addition to believing in a God whose very nature was, was love, Christians also believed that everyone was made in the image of God, as those who've been here before would, would know from the series. And this made everyone precious in their own right. So it didn't matter whether people were rich or poor, male or female, uh, you know, what social status they had or, or what they, they were like as people, everyone had dignity and worth. And if we return briefly to the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is probably why Jesus says, don't worry about who your neighbour is, just go and be a neighbour to everyone. Because if everyone is made in the image of God, then ultimately there is no category of person that you should uh, leave out, that, that you should exempt from your love and your care. So for instance, in this text, the Clementine Homilies, that was written about 380 AD, AD, sorry, we see this idea of the image of God and how that directly um, influences your, your responsibility for other people. It behooves you to give honour to the image of God, which is man, in these ways. Food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothing to the naked, care to the sick, shelter to the stranger, and visiting whom, him who is in prison, to help him as you can. I think it's really difficult for us today to appreciate how radically different this made early Christians, especially in the context of the classical world, which is the world that Christianity was born into. Because according to Greek and Roman thinking, the social order and someone's position within it was entirely predetermined, was rational, was impossible to resist. So it's like this idea that everyone is born to a station in life. The rich are, are rich, the poor are poor, slaves are slaves. That's just the way things are and that's how they should be. This is the kind of mindset. And so helping someone who isn't of your own station, who can't pay you back, makes no sense within this particular picture. And yet into this very hierarchical society, Christianity is born, this new social movement that looks at the people right at the bottom of the heap, the beggars, the orphans, the slaves and the widows, and seeks to meet their human need as part of just everyday normal worship of God. You've heard Rodney Stark, the sociologist, in the clip we just played. You've heard him say that the church's role in providing welfare, essentially, for everyone before the advent of state-sponsored welfare, he says that this was key to the growth of the church. He said, in a world that had no social services and with many slaves and very poor people, here was an organisation Sorry, He was an organisation where people took care of one another and, in a sense, provided social services that weren't there for anyone else. And elsewhere in the documentary, he says this, It was a brutal world and Christianity provided a very secure haven of humanity for people. And it's not really surprising that it was attractive. I love that line, a haven of humanity. I think it's a really good description of what the early church was like and what the church has been throughout history, even in more recent times, and often in ways that don't rate a mention in the history books that, um, that we read. Last week on the 7.30 report, there was a story on mortgage stress being felt by increasing numbers of Australians. In fact, I think it's the highest since the global financial crisis. And we hear a lot about interest rates, um, but this report clarified that even though interest rates are low, wages growth is stagnating. And so the combination of these two factors means that it doesn't really take much in order for people to, to be able to fall behind on their mortgage repayments. Maybe there's unexpected illness or maybe there's relationship breakdown. It doesn't really take a lot. But as the story goes on and we meet various people who are experiencing uh, mortgage stress, 
casual mention, very casual mention, is made of the way that the church is active in relieving their distress. So we meet the 65-year-old Les, who is $600,000 deep into debt through, through unexpected illness. And it's just mentioned, and then before it's moved on, uh, that he's receiving counselling from Catholic care. We also meet Barbara, who's a single mother of two, including an autistic daughter, who is trying desperately to launch her cleaning business, but who, whose business is only just breaking even at the moment, and so she's having to draw on her super to pay off her debts. We hear that over the last year and a half, Barbara's been feeding her family through food hampers from the churches and from the food bank, and also that she's been receiving financial counselling by the charity Christians Against Poverty. And all of this goes unremarked upon, right? It's just, it's just part of the detail of the story. The real focus is on these Australians who are experiencing these hard times. So there's no attention drawn uh, to the role that the church plays in supporting people in need. And I think that is entirely remarkable because we can tell now that it's become entirely normal to assume that the church does this stuff. And we've lost sight of how novel an idea it is and how remarkable it is given the sweep of history. It's incredible to think that this is the effect of, um, well, just one of the effects of Christianity's uh, role in the world, that it's become entirely normal to assume that the church does this. And I'm reminded of a quote by the British writer Francis Spufford, and in it he talks about the frequently unseen ways that the church cares for people. He says, the church is at its best sitting at hospital bedsides with the dying, picking up without complaining the meal that a demented person just dropped for the third time between mouthfuls, applying love in small, individual, practical ways. There is no possible PR for these things, but they push the world gently but persistently towards being a kinder and less wrecked place than it would be otherwise. I think in these ways, the church just simply gets on with the business of being a good neighbour to other people and acting in the best way it ever has for the love of God. Thank you for listening. <laughs>